Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thanks for tuning in. We are sharing businesses whose mission revolves around providing value in the wake of COVID-19, one of which is Mortar and Pestle, a Toronto-based pharmacy changing the game. The company's digital platform allows you to refill, transfer, or get a new prescription remotely without having to leave your home. Get lineups, wait times, and the hassle of getting your medications, and get your prescription delivered direct to you. To get started, go to mortarpestle.ca. That's M-O-R-T-A-R-P-E-S-T-L-E dot C-A. Today, we continue our series and conversation with business leaders as we move forward alongside COVID-19. My guest is one of the most respected minds in Canadian business. He is John Ruffalo. John's bio is littered with accolades, so I'll try and be brief. He is known primarily as the founder of Omer's Ventures and the co-founder of the Council of Canadian Innovators. John has, over the course of many years, invested over $500 million in over 40 technology companies across North America, including likes of Shopify, Hootsuite, Wattpad, Touch Bistro, and more. He has also performed platform investments where he led investments in Purpose Financial, Point North Capital, District Ventures, 111, and Arcturn Ventures. He sits on the board of a number of leading organizations, including Canopy Rivers, Continuum, Residential REIT, and Ether Capital. He's also previously served on the boards of Hootsuite, Wave, Purpose Financial, the Ontario Centers of Excellence, 111, Immunitech, the list goes on. In this very insightful conversation, we hit on a number of hot-button topics, including Canada's response to COVID-19 and the first phase of reopening, why testing and contact tracing needs to be privatized, the vulnerability of our global supply chain, what economic recovery looks like and how long a recession might last, emerging trends and business models in this new coronavirus era, and so much more. And so with that, let's get to the show. So it does seem like the primary objective of shutting down the economy has been met. And now we're entering perhaps the more difficult part of this challenge, which is to figure out how we actually reopen. So in your view, how do we do this? And does the phase one reopening plan that we see here in Ontario make sense to you? The reopening of the economy, I believe, based on the data that I've seen, that we did hit peak case sometime around third week of April. And the primary objective of flattening the curve not only has been met, has been like completely crushed. And we are heading into another issue if we don't reopen the economy and that we'll see more deaths, more damage to people's health uh, by, by keeping the economy closed you know, through deferral of necessary care, cancer cares, elective surgeries. Uh, But the two biggies that I'm, you know, deeply concerned about is high blood pressure because of stress and the impact that it might have on people, whether, you know, from a heart attack, stroke perspective. 
And the real silent killer and the one that I'm deeply concerned about is mental health. So um, I do believe we need to do this relatively quickly, but I think that we should be much more clear on the opening pattern that we're going to have, just like, say, Quebec did in terms of how very specific they were uh, in their reopening. But there is one very big thing that is missing, and uh, that is how are we going to prevent another arbitrary shutdown if all of a sudden we think there might be a second wave or a third wave and not use one blunt instrument, which is the complete shutdown of, a, of an economy, when in fact there might be isolated problems. I think we need to be very, very careful that if there is a isolated problem in a particular company, in a particular city, not the whole province should be impacted. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned the reopening in Quebec. So Quebec's got the most cases out of any province in the country, yet they seem most aggressive in terms of their reopening plans. Do you think that the rest of the country should be following their lead? How are you thinking about the role of Quebec here? Their reopening plan was actually the the clearest, the most specific. Mm-hmm. It was the timing of their reopening plan, I think, was a little too aggressive. And so the issue really is, and again, uh, across Canada is a good example. Not every province opened and closes at the exact same time because the answer is it depends. Yep. And I think that a number of the provinces are developing their own strategies based on what's happening in their particular uh, local jurisdictions. But the one head scratcher for me is, although that makes a lot of sense, there really has been no national strategy whatsoever in terms of the actual game plan. Mm -hmm. Do you think there should be? And and is that a criticism of the liberal government? It's not a criticism of the liberal government. It's a criticism of Canada in that when you actually kind of look at this and stand back a little bit, we have entered uh, a very unusual situation not seen since World War II. And that is a democratically elected government really imposing authoritarian control over a private economy, which, which we've never seen, and making decisions with virtually zero data. The data that we have at our disposal in Canada is absolutely atrocious. And I had no idea how bad it really was. Once we reopen, and let's say that we start to see some cases flare up, we do not have the data immediately at our disposal in order to identify where is that flare up happening? You know, who's who's triggering it? Uh, You know, you're hearing it. Where is our contact? Where's our tracing? And the problem with it is if you do this in the public sphere, you really have to do this, at least in in our democratic uh, economies, in a consensual fashion to respect privacy. So you look at Alberta and they may have improved, but I think that they had a half of 1% of the population. It may have increased uh, slightly. 
that have consented to the use of the tracing app on their phone. As I understand it from a statistically relevant perspective, you need approximately 60% adoption in order for it to be relevant, and they're at half of a percent. The answer is it's never going to happen. So uh, I believe that what we need to do is embolden private enterprise as a condition of going back to work that they must do the tracing. They must do the contact sourcing in a private scenario, things inside of physical buildings and premises where the rules of consent don't really apply. They're usually driven by conditions of employment. And clearly we would get over 60% buy-in from those organizations because they actually want to do it. And we would, uh, by virtue of putting testing in private hands in the province of Ontario, we would go uh, you know, anywhere from our current target of 20,000 tests a day to, you know, we could probably do a couple of hundred thousand tests a day. And I think it's really through that means is how we will obtain the right data so that we don't only have one blunt force Im- instrument at our disposal, shut down the economy and that's it. Do you think that citizens would freely cooperate with this, like this makes me think of an article that you shared a few days ago by Yuval Noah Harari um, related to privacy and how much we should be prepared to give up. I actually agree with him. And that's why any attempt to do this from a public perspective in the public sphere, I think will be doomed to fail by virtue of exactly what you have just said but in the private sphere. So if you go to work at your bank job, you get a pass card, you get a computer. They have the right to search your computer if you're surfing uh, you know, pornographic images. They have the right to listen to your phone calls if you're a broker, as an example. It's a condition of employment. So a condition of employment for you to show up physically in your office is for you to get tested. That is within the walls of a private enterprise. And by the way, you can choose to say no, but the employer has the right to say, well, you're no longer employed. You can't do that in the public sphere. You can't demand private citizens to send over their their private information to a public health authority, for example. A number of countries started off on the public front and are quickly uh, finding out that it's actually not going anywhere. So this solution that you're proposing, which I think makes a lot of sense, um, is probably going to lag or obviously going to lag behind the reopening. So as it relates to the topic of testing, given that we are beginning our reopening right now, how do you think things are going to play out? Yes, so you've nailed it. I, I think the best that we can get is what I'm describing is a situation that probably that could be done in advance of any potential second waves uh, in the fall time. But as we're reopening now, social distancing, hygiene, those practices need to remain in place, which will mean that a lot of the businesses really 
are not going to open up in, let's, let's call it, in a normal fashion for the next several months. In that article that I wrote, I had predicted then that it will take about four or five months for the process of reopening to really be carried out. I think that the primary objective of flattening the curve was absolutely the right thing to do, but all you're doing is buying time. You're not decreasing the number of people that would eventually get COVID. You're just pushing it out in a flatter curve. Through massive testing, contact tracing, et cetera, you can actually prevent people from uh, increasing the virality. Of course, this is in addition to what's really working well is social distancing, distancing and hygiene uh, best practices. Yeah, this theme about buying time is, is a big one. Obviously, you're talking about this in the context of a vaccine or a treatment, but it also relates Correct. to um, buying time in terms of the economic recovery from this, right? And the role of stimulus yes. and stimulus as a bridge until things start to get back to normal or semi-normal. Um, how do you think we've done in terms of our stimulus here in Canada and things like the wage subsidy program? When I started advising uh, various governments that we needed to inject massive amounts of stimulus, the objective was really twofold. Focus in first on those businesses that were most vulnerable, that were going to hit a cash crunch immediately because if they started to go down, it would create a cascading effect ultimately to large enterprises. So we needed to stop this kind of run on the bank. That was number one. So that's why I was targeting uh, SMEs in the broadest sense. Number two, and, th and, and I think the government reacted reasonably well to that objective. The second objective where I think they took a little too long is the idea was in essence to freeze the economy by maintaining employment by those same SMEs and this way here stopping them or at least deferring them to make layoff or, or termination decisions. What ultimately happened is the government came on with the financial incentives in the event you were already unemployed and you know the, the and and it was fine but they should have done it the other way around because what it what it actually triggered is a number of companies who had to make a very rapid decision on whether they let someone go and once they knew that that person would be taken care of uh, as an unemployed person it was much easier to let them go. And then subsequently, they came through with the wage subsidy, which was a very good program, but again, in the wrong order. By the time they came out with that, a number of people have already uh, laid off or terminated their employees. And here is the problem, and I'm already seeing it right now. Once you terminate or you lay off an employee, it is a little bit like out of sight and out of mind in that when you start to go back to work, you don't bring those people back immediately because you kind of wait to see, has your business recovered? How quick will it take to go back to quote normal? 
Um, so it's easy just to keep them off on the sidelines. If they maintained the employees, I've already seen a number of companies that, yes, they have to still come up with 25 percent of their of their compensation. But they were pivoting, thinking of different ideas, uh, you know, getting so creative on things that they never thought of before. And some have come up with some great ideas. That's number one. Number two, when they start reopening, like many will today uh, in, in the province of, uh, uh, of Ontario, you just go right back to work. It's like nothing has happened. There's no action really required other than, you know, the safety of your employees. So I think we've triggered far more unemployment for a longer period of time by virtue of the uh, of the financial policy. With respect to companies with great ideas and the idea of innovating here, you've mentioned that we've got a few unique opportunities to transform Canada and our economy for the better in ways not seen for generations. So what are some examples that come to mind for you? An example that I used back in 2009 could be reused again as an example. So in 2009, when this happened, what did Canada do uh, during the financial crisis for the auto sector? We gave $13 billion to the auto sector with basically no condition in terms of its future. And here was an industry that was already had one knee down. And there was an unbelievable opportunity to take these workers and give them a long-term future and a long-term future for Ontario. I was pushing to change the plant into an electric vehicle plant. And this is at a time when electric vehicles were still kind of at the cusp. Right. We had a, a unique opportunity to become a world leader. We decided not to. Five years later, the car companies came knocking again, asking for more money. And we politely declined. And then they said, fine, we're going away. That is so predictable. So we still have an opportunity to say, now we know that EV cars are definitely getting traction with the consumers. We could still do that. Another very illustrative example is what our poor cousins uh, are experiencing in the province of Alberta. You know, they've been blessed with all of these natural resources of oil and gas, and yet, you know, a couple of problems. Uh, number one, you know, they've gone through six or five boom and bust cycles over the last 30 to 40 years. And it's really predicated on the same few things. Here's a industry that's, that contributes quite significantly to the economy of Canada, yet we don't control the production. We don't control any refining capability. We don't control the price. And uh, it turns out that uh, even if we have the supply, uh, we can't even get the supply out to the right places. And these, these folks there who are outstanding at understanding energy, the question that we have to honestly ask ourselves, oh, and, and by the way, and not to mention the massive environmental uh, issues associated with carbon-based energies, is there a unique opportunity to help our cousins in Alberta so that not only can they get out of the problems that they're suffering under a double whammy of COVID and the war between uh, the pricing war between Saudi and, and Russia, et cetera. 
but could we reposition them uh, to become the renewable energy leader of the world? Let's use that massive stimulus to build uh, a renewable energy sector. You know, it's ideas like that. Let's talk about manufacturing in Ontario, which, you know, we've been hit in the last 10 years. We've now discovered that we are very vulnerable to certain uh, sensitive industries where we have no uh, manufacturing capacity, whether it be healthcare related items, food supply, huge issue. If we weren't such friendly or so friendly with the United States and Mexico, what would happen to us here in Canada from a food supply perspective? These are just a couple of industries that we've relied on global supply chains to support us. I think COVID is exposing that vulnerability. And do we basically, you know, insource right back into Canada those strategic industries that we probably shouldn't have ever outsourced in the first place and then try to figure out how we can drive those specific industries to efficiencies so that if uh, the goods that we ultimately buy from the Canadian industries are not significantly more expensive than we might if we were to buy them, say, from China. Yeah, and I think that's an obvious and big question, which is what impact this has on prices going forward if we are to insource and bring capabilities back on shore. Do, do you get concerned about hyperinflation and what the consumer is really willing to tolerate? Well, you know, ultimately what the consumer is willing to tolerate is important so that you make sure that you are being efficient in the production of your goods and services. But let's just talk about, you know, physical goods that we might find as important. So before COVID, the world was going through a fundamental transformation largely led by the US and it really was triggered after communism fell in 1989 where the US started to realize now that we won the uh the free world cold war we're we are not sure whether we should subsidize the rest of the world in protecting all global shipping lanes which they've done over the last 30 plus years, despite the Cold War being over. And slowly the U.S. was starting to retreat. And under Trump, not only did they increased, you know, the, the velocity of their retreat, they just literally almost are ripping it out. So transportation and logistics for goods was going to get vastly more expensive. In many cases, there was already a trend to start looking at decreasing the distance for supply chains. And this may have been the impetus to really look at this hard. And by the way, I'm not suggesting all industries, um, but really those industries that we identify as absolutely critical uh, to the future of our country. Let's talk about some of the trends post-COVID that you're seeing. So a few that are obvious, you know, working remote, uh, virtual or telehealth. But I'm, I'm curious to know what other sectors or what other trends you're looking at. How do you think things like commercial real estate, for example, will be repurposed or how will higher education reinvent themselves? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. And I'm constantly thinking about um, those issues. And I, I, I would start off by saying when in times of crisis and on the post-crisis, 
we as humans tend to uh, overestimate the impact hmm. of shock events like that. Um, so let's use, you know, the what happened at 9-11. Largely nothing changed from a business perspective other than our interaction at airports. So screening processes changed and boarding processes changed. In some high-dense cities like New York, they put a little bit of extra security uh, in buildings, and and maybe I'm missing a few other things. But you know, we thought the whole world was going to change quite dramatically, and I I think it's the same thing here. We we you know, first of all, humans are social creatures, mm-hmm. and they tend to be averse to change. But I think what COVID does it actually helped accelerate things that were not getting adoption very quickly. And it accelerated the adoption of things that that were already good ideas to begin with. So let's talk about video conferencing as an example. Um, And and I, I will raise my hand in saying, you know, on investments that I made, I always physically intended attended board meetings no matter where they were in the world despite the fact that i knew it was incredibly uh, inefficient and um and i've been using zoom or video conferencing for a long time now but i always just thought you know what it's you're you're not being uh respectful if you don't show up well, now it's making me pause and saying, you know what? The experience um, wasn't so bad. So maybe what I'll do is instead of flying to four board meetings, maybe I fly to three, maybe I fly to two. I still need that human interaction. Nothing is better than having you know, personal chats over a beer so I can see the whites of people's eyes. But, but I think that it's given a little bit of flexibility. Let's talk about the workplace, for example. Do I think that uh, commercial real estate is gone forever and everybody's working from home? Absolutely not. A couple of things I think will happen. I think it's just like in the world of retail. Is 100% online right? Is 100% physical right? Well, we've determined, and, and those questions were going on for 10 years, and We've all concluded and the market has concluded that you largely need an omnichannel presence. So it's the same thing of working or how you work. Some people who work just as effectively and are happier from home, companies have realized, and I can tell you the banks have, they they were astonished that what they thought was going to take years to do something like that took them a matter of weeks. And now for for certain employees and certain tasks, working at home is not only making your employees happier, it's also adding to the bottom line, phenomenal. Those are gonna be done. But there's a lot of folks that you just can't replace the human interaction or they just don't wanna work from home because they're not as productive. They will go back into the office. If we've got large-scale testing in private enterprises, I think that you're going to get people back in the same numbers, largely, uh, back into the offices. But one thing I would say, there was a 20-year trend 
in increasing the density of office space. And I would love to see that go back to at least where they were 15, 20 years ago, because I think it was starting to get a little inhumane in any event. So maybe there'll be a little bit less density in the offices, but offices are just not going away. Interesting to see what will happen with co-working companies, companies like WeWork. Is this the final death nail for them? I think it's it probably is. What is your take on that? Well, I would say, well, if you speak in a WeWork, if you ever followed my uh, LinkedIn posts back in 2013, I predicted their demise and they were just smarter than me, uh, than I in terms of uh, raising money from lots of folks who didn't understand that their business model was doomed to failure. The interesting thing is what they did do that was good. And I did the same thing when I launched uh, 111 in Toronto. I did it as a thought experiment. WeWork took that thought experiment and scaled it and proved that the market wanted flexible office space. And the impact that WeWork will have is when I just mentioned that you know commercial real estate is not dead by any stretch, but is it going to be the exact same way it's been operated? I don't think so. And the business model, I think, is going to greatly change. Just getting into these long-term leases and not having flexibility so that these businesses could decide who they want to work from home, who doesn't, which city, et cetera. I think that WeWork really showed uh, entrepreneurs ultimate flexibility, and that's never going away. The problem with WeWork is is, uh, because the private enterprises there are all different, WeWork probably does not have an ability, uh, at least right now, to demand that their tenants get tested because it's not a single company inside a WeWork location. So I think they'll have a more difficult time uh, than a single tenant in a location to enforce uh, testing requirements. One topic that that I've been thinking about a lot has been um, the potential impact on big cities and how this will affect real estate and real estate prices in big cities. Do people start to migrate away from big cities given they can now work from home and use technology like Zoom? Um, And as you mentioned, people have you know, done quite well uh, in a lot of cases working productively remotely. This is an area that I, I, I do think a lot about, but let me start off by responding. Think of a country in the world that has been most acutely sensitive to the spreading of germs and have been wearing masks for a long, long time. You know, what's the first country you think about is Japan. So you go to Tokyo you walk around the streets of Tokyo and you see tons of people wearing masks. You see their hygiene uh, is second to none in the world. I don't know if you've been there, but do you know that you can't even open the car door of a taxi? They have the, the automatic opener. And if you try to touch the handle, the driver uh, kind of yells at you. I think that we are going to see a pullback on high densified buildings 
you know, particularly condos. And I think we're already seeing some of that already occur. But what's hard for me to tell is I've been predicting that for at least three years because they were building condos like they were going out of style. I thought it was an overbuild. And during COVID, it highlighted some issues. But when I talk to my millennial friends who live in there and they talk about, yeah, you know, we got to watch out on the elevators. And if we see an older couple in there, we actually politely wait and stuff. Uh, then I ask him, so is this causing you to think about the suburbs? And they have this frown look on their face. <laughs> well, you know, I'd rather figure out how to deal with it. But I like going, I like going on my bicycle. I like going to my neighborhood, walking to my neighborhood pub, etc. Now, today, uh, they may not be using mass transit. Uh they may stay still be using Uber. And I think, you know, again, I go back to we are very social creatures. And I think for those folks who love the nightlife, yes, there'll be, I think uh, th there's going to be a lag of time, people going back to their normal routine. But I think that they ultimately will. But those folks who were thinking about wanting to live in the suburbs because they love big backyards or they like to be in the country, but were but couldn't do it because they would say, Jesus, but I have to go to work in downtown Toronto and my employer wouldn't allow for me to do it. Those folks might have a great opportunity now. Does this mean that Cities, given what you're saying, become a place for young people. The densification of cities mm -hmm. was being spurred upon by millennials. They didn't want to have a car. Like, like all, you, you look at all these tests. Number of them that you know wanted to get their driver's license at 16, they didn't really care. Number didn't have a car. They weren't big fans of public transit either. But then Uber came, and then all of a sudden they became like that became their their replacement. They love being on their bikes. They love the environmental benefits of high density. That's the biggest impact of savings of environmental uh, footprints is building upwards. Speaking of environmental footprints, earlier this month, Google abandoned the Sidewalk Labs project in Toronto, um, citing the coronavirus pandemic as the reason for the upheaval. Do you believe that that was indeed the case, or is there something else behind this decision? Well, uh, without going into too much detail, like I, th I think that was a good cover to get out. They fully knew what going back to 12 acres actually meant. Nothing had changed in terms of the economic return on trying to build smart city type of infrastructure on a 12 acre site it was economically unfeasible everybody knew that every developer in the city knew that and they knew it uh, too and any developer in the city of toronto would be happy to get their hands on that 12 acre site so i don't think that's the case uh what did come out uh and if you see some of the uh, articles written is that Google um, was concerned at the amount of spend 
um, uh, on this project. When I say on this project was really the whole smart cities. The numbers that were mentioned in one article I read, I read, and I don't know if it's accurate, was $200 million investment with the words and nothing to show for it. No other city in the world was prepared to do anything like this, including their own backyard of New York or San Francisco. So Google in February, I believe, Ruth Porat, the CFO, made it very clear that their advertising revenues were going to be taking a hit for the next four quarters or so, and that they needed to cut pet projects in the non-Google businesses. Something that Ruth, by the way, has been doing with quite regularity since she became the CFO. And it was in February where she publicly mentioned here in Toronto that their investments in real estate uh, were questionable. I can't remember her exact words, but she questioned it. And um, one of the uh, articles I want to say was the New York Times, but I, uh, I can't re or maybe Wall Street Journal quoted that this was one of the, the cuts uh, that uh, Alphabet decided to make. And that's why it was so sudden. Interesting. Um, not to mention all of the concerns around privacy. Right, that were front and center of this. Correct. Now, Google has proven that they don't care about that. What people don't really understand is there is a massive difference between a smart city and a smart building. A smart building was kind of like, you know, early on when I said, once you're in the private enclosed space, you can do whatever you want in this country. So in a private building, if they want to grab every single element of data for you, from you, they have a right. Uh, it's private property. They can do whatever they want. And you can go to town and build any smart building you want. And on that 12-acre site, you really could only, from a practical perspective and an economically feasible perspective, is build a smart building. And no one cares. But the moment you say smart city, what that means is control over public infrastructure, where as a citizen of or a resident of this city, you have no power or no ability to consent for your private information to be taken from you and used in some manner. And by the way, it will be used to monetize. But that is a no-go zone. That whole area will be developed. We just need to make sure that whoever starts developing, and, and I suspect this time it's going to be multiple developers, not just a single private one, that those same criteria will be applied to all of those. Uh, and now Waterfront Toronto uh, hopefully now exactly understands the potential problem, and they'll make sure that uh, – you know, in their RFPs, it will be, be made very, very clear. Those are no fly zones. Just two last questions. One is, um, where do you land on the prospect of Toronto's economy going forward and the health of our tech ecosystem here? Are you bullish? Are you bearish? Whether Toronto will fare better than the nation, I haven't thought about yet, but I think that we're going to go in a J-shaped recovery, very much so like we have done in every other recession. So here's my view. My view is 
when I was doing my calculations, one of my partners is Eric Hoskins, who was the former health minister, who was giving me, you know, unbelievable data sets. We computed April 24th was the peak. The opening of the economy should have started in Ontario on May 11th. It started May 14th, so we were pretty close. We think that all of the opening, the reopening, will occur over the months of June and July, with some exception, uh, like using long-term care homes as an example, where that's going to be much, much further off. But we're not going to get back to normalcy. When I say normalcy, that's really the new normal until around September. And it's from that point that I believe we will be in a recession. And if I use previous recessions as proxies, it's probably 18 to 24 months from that time period. I'm betting more on the 24-month side than the 18-month side. So we're in this for another two and a half years of this. So I think it will be a slow rebuild uh, with uh, relatively or historically high unemployment. It's not going to be as high as, of course, what's being reported right now. And so what COVID's done now under that scenario for the tech sector is there was a lot of unhealthy investing going on in any event. And a lot of technology businesses that had highly questionable business models. And I think what COVID did is it really exposed those businesses who really didn't have either positive unit economics or really no hope uh, for, for developing a long-term sustainable, sustainable business. But we had such a massive excess supply of capital that we're funding those businesses. COVID will operate, you know, and painfully so, as a bit of a cleansing agent to eliminate a number of those businesses. And then what happens is the capital that remains starts shifting to the businesses that look like the ones that are the survivors. But the better part of the impact is when we have so many tech businesses starting up and some of them are marginal businesses, we spread our talent very thinly. And I think, and I've already been seeing this, some great talent are moving to businesses that are already emerging as clearer winners to make those businesses stronger. So what I believe will happen is we will end up with a smaller number of tech businesses, but on average, they will be stronger businesses. And by the time we move out of the recession in two years, these businesses should be ready to just go up against global competition and come out smoking. This is what happened with Shopify. You know, they were fledgling along for a couple of years, you know, post the financial crisis. No one cared about them. Uh, they were small. There was two other competitors with them at the time. And when the supply of capital was was short between 2011 and 2014, they made all of their moves. And by the time that excess capital started showing up in the marketplace in 2015, they were already you know, planning for their IPO and, you know, look at them now. 
There was some talent migration, right? They snapped up all of these ex-Nortel folks right in their backyard. And nobody was Absolutely. paying attention to those technologists uh, in the U.S. Yep. Look at the BlackBerry effect in KW, right? Mm -hmm. BlackBerry goes down and so much of its talent uh, ended up being sourced in other companies. So, you know, I think the same thing is going to happen. But you're going to see, again, the, the, the only shame of it is, unfortunately, the ones that go out, you know, there will be individuals that will be suffering pain. And we will, in the next two years, unfortunately, going to see our deficits probably remain at very, very high levels because it's our duty as citizens to make sure that, you know, they can transition to the next gig. And there'll probably be a lots more unemployment insurance being paid over the next couple of years. But I hope, you know, after that, uh, you know, we've got a huge debt that we're going to be paying for years if we don't start getting an economic return on all of the stimulus that we've been uh, providing. Yep, agreed. John, thank you so much for spending the time. I know we ran a little bit over, but appreciate all your perspective on this and thanks so much for sharing it. All right, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the city of angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.